Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. On this episode, Jason Zweig, the second part of my interview with the intelligent investor columnist and author of The Devil's Financial Dictionary. The only question that matters is not, did you beat the market, but did you meet your goals? And why would meeting your goals be dependent on beating the market? All that and more next on the Better Off Podcast. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. I'm Jill Schlesinger, your host. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. We've got a great program for you. It is the second part of my interview with Jason Zweig. Jason is the journalist in the Wall Street Journal. He writes the Intelligent Investor column. In our first episode, if you missed it, go get it. Go subscribe to the podcast. Go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Go get that episode because it was really terrific. He made this pretty impassioned case for why passive investing is the way to go. In this episode, Jason's going to talk about the decreasing cost of investing. What an amazing thing. And also, what about the future of financial services? Jason Zweig has got a multi-decade history covering personal finance, covering mutual funds for The Wall Street Journal, for Money Magazine, for lots of different publications. He's a great author. I think you're really going to enjoy the second half of this interview. And don't forget, stay tuned for the Caller of the Week. If you would like to get on the air with us, just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Here's the second part of my interview with Jason Zweig. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. When I talk to some of the cutting edge folks in the financial services industry, what they consistently tell me is that the price of trading, of executing an order, is pretty much going to zero. The cost of index mutual funds heading towards zero. What do you see is on tap next for the financial services industry? Well, I completely agree. Um, last year, we had a uh, we had an article in the journal that I was involved in that was called "The Race to Zero. And um, I, I mean, I think it's worth just pausing for a second, Jill, and because I do have uh, I've been in this business long enough to have an institutional memory. You know, in 1992 when I became mutual funds editor at Forbes. And come to think of it, it'll be 25 years ago this coming summer. I think the first article I ever wrote that mentioned index funds, I mentioned the what today is called the Vanguard uh, 500 Index Fund. Uh, and then I think its annual expenses were around half a percent. And... Um, of course, today you can invest in a in any number of index funds for as little as three hundredths of a percentage point. So it's phenomenal how costs have come down. And the thing you have to bear in mind is that as costs come closer and closer to zero, there becomes less and less room under the curve. And the competitive pressure is going to become a lot fiercer because for every basis point, each hundredth of a percentage point that the investment firms still have, they will fight to keep that more and more viciously because their profits are continuing to shrink. So the 
the competition we've seen so far, I think, is nothing like what we're going to see between here and zero. But eventually, I think um, the cost of of funds and portfolios very well might literally be zero. It might be free. That's it might be a free good. And that's going to put enormous pressure on the people who provide advice to provide advice. Right, and, not to just sell stuff. Right. And 25 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and to a large extent even today, all too many financial advisors equate advice with fund selection. Like, you come to me for advice, oh, well, I'll tell you which funds to buy. That's not really the advice consumers need today. No, they need to know, well, which 529 plan? Do I use my state plan? I don't get it a, any benefit, but right. should I use a different state's plan? And should, yep. what kind of insurance? I even noticed, I think this was in the journal, I hope it was, uh, the insurance industry starting to embrace a little bit more of an algorithmic approach to mm -hmm. pricing policies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's also a business that could use a little shakeup. Thank you very much. A big shakeup. <laughs> <laughs> Making friends with the industry all the time. Yes. Jason and Jill show. Yes. If the fiduciary standard eventually becomes something that's not just in retirement accounts, but in both retirement and non-retirement accounts, if the cost of investing goes to zero, does this what happens to all those brokers? I mean, is it is it will you have a much smaller professional um, advice-giving cohort? I think I'm not sure that the total headcount will go down because if you think about it in a country of uh, well over 300 million people, uh, there's dozens of millions of people who need good financial advice. And most of them are either being unfulfilled, partly served, not so well served because the advice industry so far is not really set up to provide people what they need. It's largely a sales and marketing field and much less an advice field. And a lot of the people in it think they are providing advice when in fact they're just salespeople. So I think there will be an enormous shakeout. I think um, the people who are in the investment business as salespeople will disappear. It'll be slow. It could take a decade, but eventually they will be driven out. This is very good news for my designation, for my CFP designation, because I think it's going to be a little mm -hmm. bit – I think – I mean, people will say to me, like, well, you're a CFP, so you obviously obviously believe you should always work with a CFP. And I said, you know what? The reason why I got the designation is that I thought that the approach was more sane. It's not to say that if you work with a CFP, every single CFP is the best person in the universe, but what it is important to say is that – that's just philosophically a different way to approach a business. And there are CFPs who sell a lot of stuff, and there are CFPs who are really looking at, hey, I'm going to do a more holistic approach to what I do. Mm -hmm. But still, I, I do think having a designation or at least, especially before fiduciary becomes the adopted way of doing business, that it's good to work with a professional who is sort of automatically at least clears that first hurdle of fiduciary. Yeah, I would agree. And let me read another definition, Jill. So again, this is from the Devil's Financial Dictionary. Financial advisor, noun. Often, 
someone who cares deeply about being prudent, diligent, competent, and honest, in which case his or her services will be priceless. Sometimes, someone who cares only about being a big producer, in which case you are in for big trouble. <laughs> and let me read the definition of big producer, if I could, because this is, this is a very important concept for consumers to understand, which is that certainly in years past, I think you'd agree with me, the, the majority of people who hold themselves out as financial advisors were salespeople. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want to hazard a guess today as to what that percentage is, but it's still much higher than it should be. So here's the definition of big producer. Big producer, noun, a stockbroker or insurance agent who produces big commissions. The term is erroneous, however. The broker or agent doesn't produce the commissions. It is his clients who produce them. He just collects them. <laughs> I love that. That's good. So maybe if I could get the sales trip as the client, I might not be feel so bad about it. If I got that big trip to Monaco Hawaii, or Hawaii, yeah, yeah that yeah. would have been a good thing. Sure. Uh, what encourages you about the financial services industry right now? You've been covering it now, as you said, for almost 30 years. And what is, what is it that, that makes you happy about it? Well, I think there's a few things. Um, one is slowly we are migrating toward a fiduciary culture. There's a lot of signs of that development. It's slow. It's going to be two steps forward and one step back, one step back. But it's coming. It's inevitable. It's sort of like the wind of change. And it's not reversible, in my opinion. Um, the second is that low-cost revolution we talked about. I mean, in, when I first became aware of the financial markets in, I'm going to say, 1975 or 76, when I was in high school, typically um, our family was not unusual. I mean, if we wanted to know the price of a stock, we'd have to wait a week until uh, my dad subscribed to Barron's for a while. Barron's would show up on Saturday. Then he would find out one price <laughs> over the past week. Parenthetically, so my father also would ritual Saturday morning, went out and got his Barron's. Yep. I, unfortunately for our friends over at Barron's, including my buddy Jack Otter, I said, too bad that that's your demo still. Like, yeah, exactly. we got to get some more yeah, people. Exactly. But so, uh, and if you if you wanted to do a trade, you wanted to buy a stock, you had to pick up the telephone and call your broker. And um, in those days, it was a it was what was known as a long-distance call. There was a thing on your table that was kind of shaped like a pyramid, and it had this round thing on it. <laughs> and you would stick your finger in it, and you would <laughs> dial, and and it was called a telephone. A rotary phone. A rotary phone. And and that call could have could easily have cost you 2 or $3 in 1975 dollars to call your broker. It's a real number. It's a real number. Um, and you would wait three to seven days to get the little slip of paper in the mail that told you your trade had gone through, and you would have paid a commission of, depending on the stock, maybe 2 to 4% to buy it. Right, that one transaction. That one transaction. And today, you know, you can buy shares of anything you want for 
well under $10 and often for nothing, although there might your broker might still be nicking you on, on the spread, but it's still you're, you're at least 90% better off than you were 40 years ago. So the low-cost trend is hugely exciting. The other thing that I think is really that bodes well for the future is there are so many smart people in finance now. I mean, in decades past, um, and Michael Lewis has written about this quite a bit too, you know, Wall Street was kind of a refuge for people who kind of needed something to do when the golf course wasn't open. So they would go and sit on a trading desk or they would go and run a mutual fund. It was sort or, of a dilettante-esque. Yeah, and everybody seemed to have a name like, you know, Winthrop Saltonstall the fourth. <laughs> and I, I have nothing against, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, by the way. But but it was a, it was a sleepy, sort of intellectually lazy, hereditary kind of culture where – Nobody really thought about the customer, and to the extent that people did, they called them customers. They didn't call them clients. Mm. They called them customers. Brokers were called customers men. Right. He's a customer man. And, I mean, think about that and yep. what and the significance of that. I mean, it was a, it was a sales-driven, insular culture that didn't really value the people – was there to serve. And we're a long way from ideal, but we've also come a long way from where we were. And that's good and that's exciting. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll be right back with my interview with Jason Zweig, author of The Devil's Financial Dictionary. When Jason talks about the sales-driven culture of financial services and how that's changing, it makes me think about, thank goodness, what a long way that we have come from that period where we went from customers to clients. And it's about time that we have big institutions that value the people they are serving. That's why I'm so happy that Betterment is the sponsor of this program. Betterment is the embodiment of an organization that cares about the people it serves. Betterment has the answer to some of the most important questions that we ask ourselves, like, how do I manage my money? Am I going to be able to retire on time? Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently. They pay special attention to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. One way Betterment shows that it wants to put you first is that, guess what? They're fiduciaries, so a globally diversified portfolio, automatic rebalancing, tax-efficient features, award-winning customer service, and now for those who have more complex finances or just want someone to talk to, Betterman has two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. No wasting your time and money planning on the future when you've got a go-to service or person at Betterment. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to our interview with Jason Zweig. 
I love your column. My favorite thing that you either wrote or said, and I can't remember whether our mutual friend Diane told me this or I read it or maybe both. I think you wrote it in a column, which is basically that 80% of what you write is basically you've written before. You just have to repackage it so people can like understand it in a different way. Yeah, that's a, that's about right. I mean, um, I was being a little self-deprecating, I guess. No. <laughs> you. But, but look, uh, the simple truth is that much of what changes is just il- an illusion. And there's a huge industry both in Wall Street and surrounding it dedicated to the principle that the financial markets are like sports. And it's really all about who's ahead and who's behind and who's winning and who's losing and who who made an error, who fumbled, who threw the Hail Mary. And this sort of sports mentality of winners and losers is really toxic for consumers because as an individual investor, what do you care whether somebody else is making more money than you on Tuesday? That money doesn't come out of your pocket. Right. It's not a zero-sum game. I don't lose if Jill wins, and Jill doesn't win if Jason loses. I win when I stick to my game, and I don't try to play your game. And most of Wall Street's propaganda and most financial journalism, frankly, is dedicated to the proposition that you should be playing the same game as the professionals. And with the tools that are available to you now, you can beat the professionals at their own game. Mm-hmm. But think about that for a minute. The professionals have been playing their own game for decades, and they can't win their own game. Right. So why would I want to enter a game that the professional players lose in the delusion that I could win. I don't even I don't even want to try because they're no good at it. So why would I assume that coming from the outside I'd be better at it and more importantly, why play? Why do I want to play a losing game? But you know the thing is that the industry and the propaganda and the financial journalism out there doesn't give you that second piece of information. That's the other part. They say yeah. you can beat the market even though most people don't. They always forget about the second part of that. So uh, one time early in my TV universe, I was a guest on Fox Business News, and I made a a comment on air, which I said, you know, I just think it's nuts. I don't know why people just don't buy the index fund and go to sleep. And a guy bit my head off. Like, I almost got Mm. killed on air. Like, you are a snob. You think that investing is only for rich people and that little guys can't beat the big guy. I said, no, I just don't think anyone can beat. The, the big guy is the market. And so you want to go out and sell the this belief that you one could beat, which, yes, as we said earlier in this interview, anyone can beat the market at any given time. Uh, you know, an ape throwing darts can beat the can beat the market at any given time. But over the long term, that's not it. Actually, we have proof that shows that over a long period of time, it's awfully hard to consistently beat the market. So that's the part of the the industry that I can't stand is not just that you sell that, but that you don't give someone all the information they can actually make a decision. Yeah, and I think there's another level to it also, Jill, which is at least as important, which is um, if I had the choice between beating the market and meeting my goals, Mm. 
I would pick meeting my goals any day of the week. I mean, why is beating the market so important? I mean, let's say we go into a 10-year period where the market doesn't go up anymore. It goes down. I mean, look at what's happened in Japan. Mm. I mean, it's been almost 30 years. And if you'd invested in the Japanese, if you were Japanese and you invested in the Japanese stock market 30 years ago, you would have lost two thirds of your money. I mean, sure. Oh, I beat the market. <laughs> I lost only 60% of my money. <laughs> exactly. But obviously, the, the only question that matters is not did you beat the market, but did you meet your goals? And why would meeting your goals be dependent on beating the market? I mean, if I want to have enough money to retire or enough money to fund my kids' college education, um, it might not hurt to beat the market. But if I take so much risk in the attempt to beat the market that I wipe myself out, then I don't meet either of those objectives of beating the market or meeting my own goals. So you always have to think about risk as well as return. And you have to make sure when you set goals that you know why they're there. And a goal of beating the market in isolation is meaningless. Last question. What's the worst money? I'll give you another one. Or career mistake you have made. Because I'm, I'm a big believer in human capital. You hear that audible sigh? I like yeah. that. So, uh, oh, I know. I do know. In 1992, when I became the mutual funds editor at Forbes magazine, I decided not to put the maximum amount into my 401k to get the maximum company match. Uh, Forbes had a very generous 401k match at that point, and I said, no, I'm not setting that money aside because I can do better. Oh, the old I can do better. And about <laughs> 10 years ago, I went back and did a very rough, it was just a back-of-the-envelope calculation mm. of what that decision had cost me. And it was about 10 years ago, and it was about a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, can't go back, though. But that is... So max out that's and get a, your match. That's a big one. That's that'll a doozy. Catch your, that'll, that's a doozy. that'll catch your attention. Yeah. Maybe you beat the market. Just kidding. <laughs> Jason Zweig, author of The Devil's Financial Dictionary, among many other books, as well as a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Read his stuff. You can actually go to jasonzweig.com, which I did. And there's mm -hmm. lots of great stuff here that's not just your columns. you got other mm -hmm. stuff there. It's really interesting. Great articles and blogs and um, fun things. And I can't thank you enough for oh. joining us today. It's been fantastic yeah. My to pleasure, see you and hear your wisdom. And uh, and I'm delighted and just you, unfortunately, I hope you don't reach your retirement objectives because that would be sad for us. Ah, no time soon. <laughs> All right. Good. Thanks so much, Jason. All right. Thanks, Jill. My pleasure. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. It's time for the Better Off Question of the Week. Remember, this is where we answer your questions. If you want to get on the air, just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. We'll arrange to get you live, and it's very exciting. Uh, okay, let's do today's caller. It is Jim, who's on the line from Connecticut. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm great, Jill. How are you? Fantastic. What can I do for you today? 
maybe two part question, but a, 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 the big one is um, I was fortunate enough to invest, um, you know, pretty early and often in a 401k plan for probably almost 30 years and uh, changed jobs. And, and at the point I changed jobs, I then our company had it with Fidelity and I moved it into Fidelity said, you know what, why don't you, it doesn't cost anything, move it into us and you can have access to our thousands of funds rather than the 30 funds you, you had before. I thought that all sounded great. And this was probably about a year and a half ago. And so I also sat down with them and we made a little bit more um, conservative kind of allocation and things like that. And everything looked good. And instead of just putting it all in, which I was fully invested, I kind of got cute and I said, well, I'm only going to put half in now and then I'll maybe sort of dollar cost average in or something like that. And where I am today is, is I did that, but now I'm sitting on, you know, uh, I mean, I guess it's a good problem, but I'm sitting on about 400000 that I that is, is just in cash and I feel sort of paralyzed. Oh. And I don't know how to get that back sort of into the market because, you know, now it's high and... It's very hard. I mean, that's the I always say that's like the big issue around market timing is, you know, even if you're right, it's just hard if you if you miss it, it's hard to force yourself to put the money to work. So you put half of it to work and you said you were going to dollar cost average the other half. Have you been dollar cost averaging or not? They don't make it easy. It it seems to me that we we went there was like maybe 15 different sort of funds. In mm-hmm. the way, I think my wife is great at this stuff, and she, we did it once or twice maybe, but you have to do it like 15 different times. Uh. You know, it's not just like one chunk. But I, so I would say out of, you know, so I, right now out of about, there's about 1.3 total assets, and I got about four, it's actually about 400,000 in cash. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know, you know, I, I, you know, there's, you earn maybe one percent, I guess, on a CD. Do I do that? Do I slowly put in fifty thousand every other month or every month, or mm. just bite the bullet? And the, the frustrating part for me was that I never was a timer. I always believed just have it in there through the two downturns. You know, don't do anything. Right. If anything, invest more. But you just got I, spooked. I did. I got spooked and I got too cute for myself. All right. Okay. So let's let's take a step back. My inclination is this. You are how old? Uh, We'll be 57 uh, in a few months. Okay. And the 1.3 total, is that the total amount in retirement assets or is that all the money you have invested total across retirement and non-retirement? So it's the total 401k. Actually, then with my other company, it, it probably what I've been able to accrue so far, I probably have about 1.4. Um, I also have a pension at about 850 um, as well. Hmm. So that's I like that. I, I like that too. Yeah. I like a pension. <laughs> I like a guarantee. All right, we got to get this money to work. Because you know what? You're not going to need all this money. You're at least investing probably at the, at the nearest time horizon, 10 years is my guess. You're not going to touch this money. And hopefully you don't have to touch this money till you're 70 and a half, right? Till you're forced to pull money out because you're going to have pension, right? How long are you going to work? 
probably in about another 10 years. Yeah. So, all right, we're, we're talking at least 10-year money. And the other thing to think about is this. When you look at $1.4 million, don't even think about it as 10-year money because part of it is 10-year money. You might start to need to pull some of it out. But really, it's kind of 30-year money. Think about that. Because you've got to have this nest egg. You're going to have it spread out across your entire retirement. That's decades in the future. So the fact that it's more conservative will help you kind of swallow the fact that as soon as you put this money to work, I know the market's going to go down. I'm just going to probably guarantee that for you. I will let everyone know because absolutely that will happen. <laughs> yes. Please let send us a note like money is at work. We're done. So if you are still a little bit skittish, okay? You've got some low-cost index funds, right? I don't know. What's your allocation right now? 60-40? 50-50? What are you about? Uh, it's probably about 55 to 60% stock in the rest. In, okay. In okay. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to say thirty grand is going to go into my stock index fund. Okay? Ten grand is going to go into my international index fund. And then twenty grand is going to go into my bond fund. Just do three. Do it sixty grand a month until you get done. And that's that. Is, is there a, a particular fund? Yes, the cheapest is... one. <laughs> because it doesn't really matter. I don't want you in any managed funds. So essentially, I want you in something that's going to be 10 basis points a year or less. And that will be a stock index, an international index, and a bond index. And don't worry about anything else, at least for this money. Once you get the, all the money invested, you want to reallocate, go reallocate. There's no tax event doing so. But just get this money to work. And that way, the market plunges, then, you know, so be it. You're going to be stuck with it for 10 years. You've already seen the worst. And remember, if you're getting freaked out about it, just say, this is not even 10-minute money. It's the very minor amount. It's 10-year money. It's probably closer to 30-year money. Get the money to work in the cheapest funds possible. Okay. That sounds sounds like great advice. Thank Uh, you so much. Take care, Jim. Good luck. Thank you so much to Jason Zweig, who I basically handcuffed in the studio, would not let him go, and allowed us to create two fantastic episodes. He is such a charming and interesting guy. And thank you for all those great questions. Don't forget, there's a new episode of the Better Off Podcast every Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. BetterOff is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.